You can find the uh, passage on page 33 of your pew Bible if you don't have your own. Genesis 39, verses 1 through 20. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that uh, that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do this work, uh, and none of the men of the house uh, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that she had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment beside her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the servant. This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, uh, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this passage. We pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit this morning, we would be confronted with the Lord Jesus. We know that nothing I say alone will change our hearts. We know, though, that Your Spirit alone can do that, and we pray that that would happen this morning, that we would come away changed by the power of Your Spirit working with Your Word. And we thank You that You do promise to do that, Pray these things for your glory and for our benefit. Amen. Well, one of the great guy movies of the last five years has to be the movie Gladiator. And it's not the kind of guy movie with the cheesy action and the one-liners that everybody loves, although there are some good one-liners in there. It's the kind of movie that won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And it's also one of my own personal all-time favorites, 
I imagine probably most of you have seen it. If you haven't, it's definitely worth the rental. It's this great story that has these incredible elements of love, of betrayal, of justice, of honor, and even faithfulness. But probably what resonates the most about this story that makes it so appealing is that there's this man, the main character, who is in this glorious position, who is then brought low as a slave and then is exalted again. It's the kind of story that you're on the edge of your seat just waiting to see what's going to happen next throughout the entire movie. The main character's name is Maximus, and he was this top general in the army of the Roman Empire when it was at its height of its control. This was at its pinnacle. He was next in line to become emperor, but then, as most of you probably know, he was illegitimately taken out of that position by the emperor's son. And then what follows that is that he's kicked out of the empire. His wife and his son, whom he loves dearly, are murdered in Spain, and then he ends up as a slave in North Africa, after being in this position of great prestige and power. Well, eventually he makes his way back to Rome uh, as a gladiator. He ends up in the Colosseum and is faced then with Marcus Aurelius, who was the one, I'm sorry, not Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, who was the one that had taken the throne from him. And then he has the opportunity to kill him. He does so, and then is the rightful heir to the throne. But instead of taking the throne for himself... He grants the power and authority back to the Senate. He returns Rome to a republic, which is what Marcus Aurelius' request had been from the start. So he, he passes this prestige and this power that he would have as emperor and instead turns the power back over to the people for their benefit, for the benefit of Rome. So it's this great noble story, not a dry eye at all at the end of the movie. But this story, this story of being exalted, of being brought low, and then being exalted once again, of course, is not original to the movie Gladiator. And in fact, this same pattern is found in this passage that we're looking at this morning in Genesis 39. And it's found in an even greater way in the entire life of Joseph. What we really see here is that he is the, uh, he's pointing towards Christ as the suffering servant. Joseph himself was a suffering servant. I've titled this sermon, Joseph, a suffering servant or redemptive suffering. And what we'll see is that that's really two different perspectives on the same thing. And we could say it this way. The suffering of a suffering servant always has a redemptive purpose. This type of suffering is always for the benefit of others. It's always, it always means that one person's suffering will mean another person's gain. And what I want to look at this morning are these three things having to do with this theme of redemptive suffering. First, we'll see this theme of redemptive suffering in the life of Joseph. Secondly, we'll see that Joseph's redemptive suffering points to the ultimate suffering servant, who is Christ himself. And then finally, we'll see that because we are united to Christ and we're called to imitate him, that we also suffer redemptively. So first, the redemptive suffering of Joseph. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the story of the life of Joseph. Some may not. That's fine. But the story of Joseph is one of probably the most incredible in the Bible. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, a patriarch. He was the favorite because he was the youngest. His brothers also recognized the fact that he was the favorite of their father. 
And they despised him for it. They absolutely hated him for it. The Bible even says that they couldn't even speak peacefully with him because they despised him so much. And to make matters worse, Joseph goes on to tell his brothers about these dreams that he had had, which included him ruling over them. So the brothers then are are obviously not very excited about this. You've got the youngest in the family who is the favorite of the father, and then he starts talking about dreams that he has of ruling over the entire family. Obviously, this is not something that older siblings are very excited about. And as a result, the brothers conspire to kill Joseph. And then at the last moment, his brother Reuben spares him from this. They decide instead, let's go ahead and sell him into slavery. We can benefit from that. If he dies, what benefit is that to us? So then they end up selling him to this group of Ishmaelites that are heading down to Egypt. He's sold into slavery there. And that's actually where our text this morning picks the story up in Genesis 39. Look back there at the first six verses of of chapter 39. Here we're told that we have a slave that is sold into Potiphar's house. And Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Egypt. The text even says he was an officer of Pharaoh. So this guy is very powerful, probably has a number of servants. But there's something completely unique about Joseph here. They put him in the favor of Potiphar. Look at verse 2 specifically. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. This right here is the key to Joseph's successful reign. His, key, his, his rise to power is completely of the fact that God was with him. And so you can see here that Potiphar even notices this. He notices something different about Joseph. The Lord is with this guy and every single thing that he does is successful because of it. So Potiphar sees it. He promotes Joseph to the highest position in his household. So Joseph's in charge of all of Potiphar's household, everything that Potiphar owns, and Potiphar's entire estate. It's all being blessed because of it, too, we read. So Joseph is in a great position here. He's been in one of the worst positions just prior. He, he had just avoided being killed. He sold into slavery. But then as a slave, he's promoted to this great position of power from this lowly place to this high place. But we see at the end of verse 6 there that the author has given us some background information that's going to be very important for the rest of this story. Some change is coming here. It tells us just that Joseph is a good-looking guy. It says he was handsome in form and appearance. And because of this, though, Potiphar's wife is attracted to him and tries to seduce him. And really, it's probably a stretch to say that she even tried to seduce him here. This is more of just a command that she gives just to a slave. But notice how Joseph responds here. He talks first about all the trust that Potiphar has placed in him, the great position that he has here. But he concludes by saying this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph recognizes that to indulge here, to commit adultery with this woman, is not merely a sin against Potiphar. It's not even merely a sin against Potiphar's wife, but that primarily it's a sin against God. And it's interesting that that's what he's concerned most with here. And we see that, of course, he escapes that first temptation, but then this woman is relentless. The text says that she kept talking to him day after day, saying this was a constant struggle. She was constantly trying to get him to sleep with her. 
And finally, she corners him when no other workers are around. Everybody was outside of the house and commands him again to sleep with her. And Joseph just flees, leaves his garment and goes. He gets out of the situation as fast as he can. And of course, it's that very garment that she later uses to incriminate him. He's wrongly accused by that garment. She turns her husband against him, and Joseph is again in prison. So Joseph is brought from the height of ruling over this entire household to being just a prisoner again. And I want to point out a couple things about this. There are a couple important things we should notice. One, Joseph was innocent. He's wrongfully accused here. He recognizes the seriousness of such a crime, and he's been fleeing it for that reason. But look at what results there. He's in, he's in prison for a crime that he did not commit. There was a new show on ABC this past year. It was called Injustice. Maybe not many of you saw it. I don't even know if it's still going to be on next season. Uh, Jeanette and I got pretty addicted to this show pretty quickly. Um, and it's not because of the acting either, because the acting is terrible. But the storyline is great. It's about this nonprofit group who just seeks to get these prisoners that have been wrongfully accused, these innocent people, out of prison. And it's just that same story that you love to, to hear, of these people being just, justly released from prison. Being wrongly accused for a crime that you did not commit has got to be one of the most terrible forms of injustice. One of those things that just pulls, pulls at you. And Joseph's case was even worse. He was acting righteously. He was seeking to obey the Lord here and maintain his righteousness. And just think about what he must have been thinking and feeling there. And when he's seeking to be obedient, and he does successfully remain obedient, and yet he's still in prison here. This is real persecution. The second thing we need to notice about what happens here is that the Lord is still with Joseph. Look at the beginning of verse 21 chapter 39. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. So this entire chapter, all of chapter 39, is capped on each end by emphasizing the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph in his exaltation when he was ruling over the household. He was also with Joseph, though, the entire time as he's wrongly accused of adultery and is thrown into prison. So Joseph was never outside of God's control at any point. What we see at the end of chapter 39 there is the beginning of Joseph's second and greater rise to power. This is where he really really rises to an authoritative position. We see in 21 that there's a prison guard here that shows him favor. He's shown favor in prison immediately, then interprets the dreams of a couple prisoners one of whom will remember him later when he's in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh then calls for Joseph to come interpret one of his dreams. And the result of this, the result of this is that Egypt is going to have seven years of prosperity and seven years of drought. That's the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. And because Potiphar, I'm sorry, because Pharaoh, just as Potiphar did, recognizes that the Lord was with Joseph, he raises Joseph up to this position of power. He becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And what he does in this position is that he prepares for the seven years of drought during the seven years of prosperity. He stores up all this food to prevent people from starvation. 
So as the seven years of prosperity come to an end, the seven years of drought begin, people from all over the world begin coming to Egypt to get this food. Even Joseph's brothers, those ones who had thrown him uh, into the pit, had left him for dead, and then eventually sold him into slavery, came and got food. Okay, so why are we walking through Joseph's entire life here? Why is this so important? Well, here's the point. If Joseph hadn't suffered in prison for the crime that he didn't commit with Potiphar's wife, he never would have been called on to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Okay? Now, if he hadn't interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, he never would have been prepared for this drought. And because of that preparation that Joseph made for the drought, the people of Egypt, the people of Israel, and really much of the known world were saved from starvation because of this. So if God hadn't put Joseph in the position of power that he did, thousands and thousands of people would certainly have died. There was no food to be eaten anywhere. So God used the suffering of Joseph, the wrong, the unjust accusations that he endured that ended up putting him in prison to lead to the salvation of many people. I'll turn over to Genesis 50 here. These are a familiar couple of verses. Notice what Joseph says here to the same brothers that had betrayed him earlier. In verses 19 and 20, he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph's righteous, sacrificial suffering that led to his exaltation here in the land of Egypt, was for the literal salvation of many people. The family of God, or you could say the people of God, the actual sons of Abraham here, and the nations even, were saved through the sacrificial suffering of one man, Joseph. And we see that same pattern in a greater, or really we could say a more ultimate way, in the life of Christ Himself. And this is what we're meant to see. It's not by accident that there's this similarity here between the life of Joseph on this this downward path up to exaltation as there is in the life of Christ. The story of Joseph's redemptive suffering is really meant to point us towards the greater redemptive suffering of Jesus. And probably the most concise explanation in the Bible even of Jesus' exaltation through humiliation is found in the book of Philippians, specifically chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which is actually what we just read earlier. Uh, go ahead and turn there now because I want to look at, at these verses individually. There's this clear pattern of humiliation that leads to exaltation here, very similar to the life of Joseph, this, this very same pattern that we see. Look at verses 5 through 7 there. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's calling the Philippians here to imitate Christ. Uh, They're they're supposed to imitate him in his humility. He's about to describe that about Christ. And then verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. What he's saying here is that the incarnation itself 
is an act of humility. We sometimes don't think about that, about Christ coming in the flesh as being an act of humility. That's not something we talk about at Christmas all the time. But think about this. We're talking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who's existed eternally in perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit, who condescends, He comes down and takes on a complete human nature. This is the infinite taking on the finite here. That in itself is humble. That's an act of humility right there. But, though, Christ's humility doesn't even stop at that point. If it wasn't enough that He would show His humility by, be, by becoming man, He humbles Himself to an even greater degree here, which is just striking. Look at, uh, look at the end of verse 7. It says, "...in being found in human form..." He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ as a human was faithfully obedient to the Father to the point of death. And we're often tempted to think, at least I am, that that when God comes in the flesh, we would expect Him to come showing this great, visible, outward authority that He would take over all nations and rule over all people, maybe as an earthly king would, in, some, in a way to where nobody could doubt that He is Lord of all. What we see, though, in this passage and in the life of Jesus is that's not what He does at all. Instead, He exercises His power and authority, and it's, it's still real power and authority, through humility and service, which is just against everything that we would initially think. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus exercised His Lordship through this sacrificial, self-denying love. He humbled Himself here to the utmost degree and in the most extreme way. It says there that He died one of the most terrible and awful deaths that we could imagine. And all the while here, this is, this is God, because of His great love that He has for us, becomes flesh and He dies for sinners. He dies this terrible death for people that hate Him. Now, if we're thinking about suffering, if we're thinking about humility, it just doesn't get any lower than this. It doesn't get more humble than this. That God Himself would die on behalf of a people that hate, hates Him. There's, there's, no, there's nothing lower than that. But then you see this result here in verse 9. What happens at that point? Well, God exalts him to the highest position. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God exalts Christ here to the greatest position of glory and authority. And notice what Christ's suffering accomplishes here. His obedience, which the text says led Him to death, even death on a cross, was for our redemption. Okay? That Christ suffered and died that all who would trust in Him would be saved. He died so that we wouldn't have to. And the Bible even calls Christ the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah says this, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Christ suffered and died that we wouldn't have to. He accomplished in his suffering our salvation. So his death on behalf of his people is really the climax of redemptive suffering. This is the epitome of what it means to suffer redemptively. His suffering and death brings us life. That's the benefit that we gain from this. So in this bigger story of redemption that we've kind of looked at this morning, we've got Joseph's life as a suffering servant, which is really pointing towards the suffering servant, Christ himself. And it's here that we enter this grand story of redemption. Because we ourselves are united to Christ, we actually become a part of this story of redemption that's been playing out through all history. We are united to Him. And because of that, we are called to live lives of redemptive suffering too. But that's what we are called to do. Because we are Christians, we will suffer. And we shouldn't be surprised by it either. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering is not strange. Suffering is not unusual. In fact, all believers are called to live a life of suffering. And really what what this should do is that it should change our expectations of what we think the Christian life should be. We don't often think about the Christian life being a life of suffering because we all live pretty great lives here. We're we're Americans that are blessed in many ways financially. We have many comforts. And we don't think about our lives as being lives of suffering. You know, we laugh. We see these preachers on TV. They make these ridiculous promises. You're going to be rich. Your credit card bills are going to be done away with somehow. I don't know how that works. You mail them in and they pray over them and they disappear or something. Or at the very least, all of your problems are going to disappear. All you have to do is accept Christ, maybe send a little money their directions. You know, we laugh at those things. We talk about how ridiculous they are. And they really are ridiculous. But aren't we doing something similar when we expect God to deliver us and keep us from any difficult circumstances and from any suffering. When we expect God to maintain our health, we expect God to maintain the health of our families. And then if He doesn't, we think that He's not good. We think that He's withholding some sort of blessing from us, that for some reason He's not, he's not good, He's not faithful. What about when we expect God to give us good-paying jobs that we enjoy? We think that He owes us that. How often do we gauge God's blessing, God's goodness, God's faithfulness by whether or not we're living the American dream? I know that's something I struggle with a lot. We think that if we don't have what everybody else has, that God is not good. Here's what Jesus says we should expect instead. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. We should expect suffering. 
And the Bible speaks of this joy that comes in suffering, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I don't want to downplay the reality of suffering here. Suffering is still suffering. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pleasant. It may result in actual death. But suffering is an indispensable part of the Christian life. It's what it means to follow Jesus, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, if you're here this morning exploring the claims of Christianity, trying to figure, figure out what Christianity is all about, this is a good place to come to ask those sorts of questions. You may be thinking to yourself here, and rightfully so, this is insane. This is insanity that you, you're telling me here that to be a Christian, you should expect a life of suffering. That as a Christian, you're to rejoice in suffering. And that's an understandable and a legitimate question here. But really, the answer is, yeah, that's, that's what the Bible says. But, and here's, here's the important part, this suffering is not without reason, and it's not without purpose. The suffering, it's not suffering for suffering's sake. There is a good purpose and a good end to it. And what is that purpose? The Bible gives a number of explanations for it. We'll just look real quick here at two of them. One, and this is huge, in suffering... We know Christ more, and in knowing Christ more, we know greater joy. Listen to how Paul describes this, what it means to know Christ in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 10 he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul speaks of the thing in life, the entire reason for our existence, that the sole purpose for being here is that we would know Christ, that we would be in a restored relationship with this risen Christ. And that's what he's pursuing here. He's saying that the worth and the joy that comes from knowing Christ trumps all other pleasures and all other comforts that we could experience. And he even says that there's a glorious benefit here of entering into Christ's sufferings. That there's benefit to suffering. And this is so crucial that we understand. If we, if we don't understand that there's a purpose for suffering, then you end up being disappointed with God. You end up being disappointed with your lives. You, being, you end up being disappointed even with your family and the people around you. You feel let down. Your expectations are never met because you don't see suffering as something that's redemptive and that's actually beneficial in some ways. You may be thinking, why or even how is suffering still a part of our life, our lives as believers? Because we've just talked about here how Christ suffered that we wouldn't have to and things along, along those lines. Didn't He suffer so that we wouldn't have to why are we now in a position where we also would have to endure some pain and hardship? John Piper has a great quote about this. He says, The death of Christ for the sin of my selfishness is not meant to help me escape the suffering of love, but to enable it, because He took my guilt and my punishment and reconciled me to God as my Father. I do not need to cling any longer to the comforts of earth in order to be content. I'm free to let things go for the sake of making the supremacy of God's worth known. 
And that's really the second, the second point here, the second purpose for our suffering that we'll look at. In suffering, we show to the world that knowing Christ is more important than anything else in this life. That nothing this life has to offer compares with knowing Christ. So in our suffering and in our weakness, the glory and the power and the worth of Christ is made known to the world even. And this is how, like Joseph and like Christ, our suffering can be redemptive too. Now, it's going to be for the, for the benefit of others so we can say that it's redemptive in a sense. But our suffering is not redemptive in the same sense that Christ's suffering was redemptive. We're not saying that when we suffer, we're paying for our sins or paying for the sins of others in any way. But it is redemptive in that by our suffering, we proclaim Christ. That's what happens when we suffer. Here's another quote from Piper. God ordains suffering because it displays to the world the supremacy of His worth above all treasures. Suffering with joy proves to the world that our treasure is in heaven, not on earth, and that this treasure is greater than anything the world has to offer. The supremacy of God's worth shines through the pain that His people will gladly bear for His name. Knowing Christ, and therefore suffering with Christ, trumps all other earthly pressures. And think about what this means for our lives. Think about it very practically here. It means that we can boldly take the gospel to places where it may be dangerous. As missionaries in foreign countries, they can go with confidence, knowing that they may even lose their lives, but that their suffering is redemptive. It shows forth the surpassing worth of Christ. And even for us, it means we can take the gospel boldly to our neighbors, to people at work, to people at school, to people that it may face persecution for us then, that we may be put down in some way, we may be thought less of because of it. But we can go and truly love people without this fear of persecution and suffering because we know that this is what we are called to do as followers of Christ. There is a redemptive purpose and there is good reason for our suffering even in those circumstances. We're free to die to ourselves here. That the surpassing worth of knowing Christ would be made known to the world, to our neighbors, and to our co-workers. So why is this so important for us to hear? Why, why do you want to come up here and tell me that I'm called to suffer? Tell me that I should expect suffering? And that, that even I, I should rejoice in it. Why do we want to hear this? Well, nobody really wants to hear this. I realize that. Really, the reason, because we're scared of suffering here, because we try to flee these difficult circumstances, is the very reason that we need to hear it this morning. And I don't like to hear that I'm not supposed to be concerned with my own comfort. I'm not supposed to be concerned with myself and my own life first and foremost. I don't like to hear that my primary concern is not me. That's not comfortable. I don't like to do that. But we need to hear this, though. We need to hear that Christ died to free us from that obsessive concern with ourselves and with our own comfort. We need to hear that the joy, the value, and the worth of knowing Christ far surpasses any temporary comfort that we could experience, okay? We need to be reminded of the joy of the Gospel, that knowing Christ, along with Paul, is 
better than anything else that this life has to offer. That our whole point of existence would be that we would know this Christ. We can rejoice in suffering because we rejoice in Christ. We can love people. We can serve boldly and sacrificially. We can do this by entrusting ourselves to Christ who is the suffering servant with whom we are united and have restored relationship with. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we confess that this is not what we like to hear often. We don't like to hear that we are called to live lives of suffering. Lord, I pray uh, for all of us that we would be filled with the joy that You promise in Your Word. The joy that comes with knowing Christ. Uh, that we would suffer on His behalf. That others may hear and know of Christ. Uh, for Your glory. We pray that we would take joy in that. We pray that it would characterize our lives. We pray that we would not flee from suffering, but that we would know that You have a purpose and a reason behind it. Uh, that we would seek to suffer well in some way. And we thank You, Lord, that knowing You uh, is above all else the most important thing of our existence. And we pray that You would instill that in us more and more. Help us to believe you at your word, uh, that the surpassing worth of knowing you trumps all other earthly pleasures. We thank you that your spirit indwells us and continually convinces us and helps our unbelieving hearts in that. We pray that he would do that now. We pray these things for your glory and for our benefit. Amen.